Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Better be good. Your mama's in the house. Better be good. I want to really push our marriage enrichment seminar at the end of this month. Please, if you haven't done so already, uh, sign up. Again, not just for couples, but for everybody. If you're engaged, if you're contemplating marriage, uh, if you're a marriage wannabe, please do that. And especially if you are married. And uh, we've kept the, the cost cheap. It's coffee, dessert. And uh, just a great evening with John and Helen. So please uh, mark that in your calendar and be a part of that. If your spouse is saying to you, we should go to this, that's a cue. Just saying, just throwing it out there, that's a cue. Make it happen. Let's get busy. Let's pray first. Father God, many of us, uh, we just were desperate to hear from you. Uh, On a day uh, as today, some of us are lonely, some are broken. Uh, Some just even uh, are dragging themselves in, wondering if one more day is even possible. God, we just, uh, we need to hear you speak uh, into us uh, something that is fresh, something that is new, something that is beautiful today. And we have so many distractions, and so I just ask that uh, today you would just center us, focus, uh, uh, focus us, clean the voices out, and let us hear from you, because we need it. And give us these, these moment, in these next few moments something that will actually transform us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I've decided to use the film that I believe corresponds with our celebration of womanhood theme here at Soul Sanctuary. And uh, we're sort of in the middle of a series that is looking at uh, movies and seeing what message is being portrayed on the big screen. And As I said before, whether you like it or not, uh, the theater is the greatest pulpit in North America. People go to the movies to get their story, and there are these preachers that we call producers and directors who are communicating their worldview, Uh, they're communicating their philosophical system and their morals and their values through story. And the fact of the matter is nothing shapes our culture like movies. And movies are powerful cultural artifacts that entertain, they shape, they inspire people literally right across the globe. It's just the way it is. They they are a place to ask hard questions. We do that in film. We tell stories. Uh, We think about our past. We learn about hope. Um, And so movies are interesting because they touch on so many different topics. They touch on grace and evangelism and community and purpose. But we also see not only my story, you see your story. We even see how God's story shows up. And then it's all intermingled and woven together. And so as Christ followers, we are to engage our world. And one of the ways that we do this here at Soul is that we look at movies that uh, seem to have something big to say. And they bring God's uh, revealed truths into contact uh, to what we see on the screen. And any generation in any culture can teach by telling a story. But for our post-literate culture, movies are one of the most helpful resources for teaching. And that's why we've jumped into this um, series for the next little while. And the fact of the matter is, is that Christians can no longer afford to treat the culture like this threatening influence, and we, we build our little fences. Instead, we need to recognize that 
Um, we are permanently woven into the social fabric of where we find ourselves, into the very system uh, of, of culture. And what we see on the screen not only affects our families, it affects our schools, and it affects our churches. What do we do with it? How do we handle it? Now, again, I, in the past, I've often got some pushback or some questions that have come my way, and uh, I've always had to go back to the book of Acts, not to justify what we do, but I think uh, the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul comes to Mars Hill, it's very interesting. He looks for common ground between the Christians and the Greek theology, and he explored the theological um, uh, agreements before moving on to having unique insights and doctrines of Jesus and communicating those to the people around them. He quotes from their religious playwrights. He quotes their poets, poets of Greek, popular Greek culture, and he points out where they got it mostly right. What are you talking about, Jerry? Well, Acts 17, 28, it says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's from Epimenides. That's a quote from one of their philosophers. He goes on and he adds, we are his offspring. That's a quote from a hymn to Zeus. So Paul talked about truth. He talked about the beauty in, in pop culture. And I believe that we too can look at things like movies and songs that are a jumping point for us that point to a greater truth. Now last week, the genre was a musical, The Greatest Showman. Uh, this week, we're gonna look at a superhero. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, I went through tons of comic books. Now, comic books were like cartoons uh, that you could hold and watch them whenever you wanted, in case you didn't know what those were. Uh, this was before the internet. This was before the Cartoon Channel, obviously. When I was growing up, cartoons were only on Saturday morning. Do you guys remember those days? You got up early, you watched Saturday morning cartoons. The comic book was your 24-hour um, movie channel, right? Uh, and for me, when it came to comics, I wasn't allowed to buy comics growing up, don't ask, uh, but I had to rely on hand-me-downs. So uh, we would often find gems in the garbage, and uh, of course we would share them amongst friends, and I have a confession to make. Uh, this is where I was introduced to superheroes um, and to speech bubbles, and and then Linda Carter shows up, and I was glued to the TV. I just have to be really honest. That, that was just what it was. Now, with our culture telling us it's Mother's Day, I find it only fitting that we talk about a powerful woman. And something tells me there may be a few females in the room today who might want to tune me out saying, what does a man have to say about womanhood? Okay, well, on the other hand, there are going to be men in the room saying, seriously, I came to church for this? Um, let me encourage you that God has something to say to all of us here today. Now, in case you didn't know, there are different types of superheroes, each from a different source of comics. There are the Marvel superheroes, and then there's the DC superheroes. And if you care about the, the difference, because what I have found out is that many people do, well, if you are one of these people who are going to have some questions, talk to my son, James, um, because he will bring you up to speed on the difference. And he goes ballistic when I make mistakes regarding this. Now, our movie today is based off a DC comic book hero, uh, our heroine. Um, uh, and why is this such a big, de uh, big deal? Well, let me he help you. There was, uh, 
the horrendous Supergirl movie back in 1984. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this. Please don't. Um, it basically taught audiences that women superheroes were simply cheesy and wide-eyed. Um, jump forward a few decades later, you have Holly Berry's Catwoman. Um, she actually received an, uh, no, not an Oscar, a Razzie. And if you don't know what a Razzie is for any movie, it's the worst of. And she actually went there to collect her Razzie, which many uh, actors and actresses do not do. And there she actually admitted it was an awful movie uh, upon collecting her reward. And then there was another attempt um, by Jennifer Gardner in Electra. And uh, uh, she tried. Um, the story, the dialogue were so bad that nothing could actually save this film uh, from being another rotten attempt at a female-driven superhero movie. Uh, and that's it. When you looked at every other superhero movie, it's always centered around men, right? You have Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, Superman, Batman. We get the point. And all that said, thankfully, Wonder Woman is thrilling. And uh, it's earnest and, and it's simply wonderful. I, I have to admit, this is me. Now, according to Variety.com, Warner Brothers, Wonder Woman set a record in June of 2017 for the highest grossing film ever directed by a woman, which was... Patty Jenkins. So again, you're looking at a, a, a film about a female, directed by a female, and uh, to me, I thought it was, it was very entertaining. And uh, it's set against the backdrop of Greek mythology, or quasi-Greek mythology, depending on how you look at this. And this is where we meet Diana. Now, Diana is a mighty, well, she's a princess. She's of the mighty Amazons. And uh, if you don't know what the Amazons is, it's more than a river. It, it, it's a race of all female fierce warriors who were created to protect humankind. However, they live in this hidden paradise. And all they do is train. Um, that's what I've noticed. That they just fight amongst each other and they train. So uh, they're hidden because Ares, the god of war, has inhabited earth. And uh, we look at this movie and we see that this young princess, this young Diana, she's fascinated with the Amazonian women and their training and their battle skills. She wants to be a warrior and she's this little kid who's imitating and it's beautiful. Her mother, the queen, though, is very protective. Uh, she's a helicopter mother, if you know what I'm talking about. She's apprehensive about allowing her daughter to move in this direction. Watch this. Ouch. <laughs> it's not for you. And so as Ares, the god of war, runs rampant on earth, Diana's aunt, the queen's sister, and the greatest fire amongst, fighter amongst the Amazonian uh, uh, warriors begins to secretly train Diana without the permission of her mother because she knows, she knows that Diana's special. And uh, Diana's not just an Amazon. She has supernatural powers because her father was the Greek god Zeus. Now, Eventually, the queen agrees that this world of peace um, that they've been living in will ultimately end. And so she allows Diana to be trained. And eventually, Diana finds out who she is and what type of powers she has. Watch this. <laughs> I could feel the tension. <laughs> Then one day her bubble is literally broken as a human being literally crash lands into their world. Raised on an island entirely populated by women warriors, Diana's experience in the world of men 
is both eye-opening and depressing. The world of the human beings is embroiled in death and destruction of the World War I. So we go back in time here. And so Diana sees this plane coming into their airspace, and it's crash lands. She swims out. She saves the pilot, only to find herself and the pilot in the middle of a war as the Germans, who are chasing the pilot, land on the beach, and they begin to kill the Amazons in their attempt to capture the pilot. The Amazons defeat the Germans on the beach, but it's at a very high cost. And after the battle, the Amazons interrogate the pilot with the lasso of truth. Watch this. I just like that. <laughs> I wanted to share it. Now, Steve informs the Amazons that the outside world is, is on the brink of total destruction. He's obtained a top-secret document, which was actually the form of a notebook. It contains information about this new superweapon that the Germans had developed, which was actually a deadly nerve gas that they actually planned to release on the Allies. And having lived in a sort of this Eden-esque utopia, Diana sees suffering, and she responds. And it's her innocence that is responding. She's motivated by empathy uh, as much as her, as what she says in the film, her sacred duty to defend the world. And then Diana turns around and she asks her mom, the queen, she says, who will I be if I stay? And so she decides that she needs to do something and both she and Steve step outside of their bubble and there she begins to understand the presence of sin in the world, as I would put it, as she leaves the security of her island, as she leaves Utopia, and she goes with Steve to deliver the notebook to the Allied High Command with the hope that once the notebook gets there, it's going to stop the war. Now, at the start of her journey, it's quite interesting, uh, I was struck by her innocence, and it's, she plays it very well, and I'm reminded of me in my early 20s, if I can say that. Thank you very much. Maybe not so much the innocent part, but the fact that when I went on my first overseas missions trip, I thought I was going to save everyone from Satan. I really did, and I had no idea at what actually awaited me. Now, our Amazon princess finds life in London somewhat of a dis difficult adjustment, or as I would say, a clash of culture. Watch this. So even in a movie, it's interesting how culture defines what a woman is, right? And although Diana redefines what a woman is, society is always creating, is trying to create what a woman should be. And yet the Bible tells us something very different. In Proverbs 31, uh, 30, it says, charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And uh, I think it's an important verse because it says that your identity and your value don't come from cultural expectations, but they come from our relationship with God, uh, the one who created us. It comes from your relationship with God, the one who created you. And now, gentlemen, don't tune me out here because actually this applies to all of us as well. And unfortunately, we get mixed up and we buy into false definitions of who we are and we buy into finding our worth in the wrong things. And it actually really begins to mess us up. And in our culture, there are actually three very destructive ways that we incorrectly define ourselves. Now, when I define myself by my relationships is one of them, you know, or sometimes the lack of 
lack thereof. Like we, we get so wrapped up in our relationships of, you know, maybe who we're stalking or who we're dating or, you know, if we're married, right, who we're married to. The, the only relationship in our life that's important to define who we are is our relationship with God. Now, I don't want to demean any spousal relationship, but it's our relationship with God that needs to be number one. God is our definer, and honestly, many people miss out on this. Or do I define my, 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 my identity by my role? You know, and this is somebody who's so tightly wound up in what they do. Don't you know who I am? Right? We're so wound up in our, our role. That's our identity, and our identity is our job. And if you lose your job, you lose your identity. And maybe you know people like that. Maybe you find your identity in being a mom. You know? The problem is, at some point, your kids are going to grow up, and they're going to leave the nest. Then what? Or, or what about those who are unable to have children and, and now they feel insignificant and they, they struggle with that? Well, then what? You know, there's only one role that's important enough for, to define your life and that is your role as a child of God. You are his. And finally, you know, again, we define ourselves sometimes by our reflection. You know, the, the introduction was beautiful. The, the pastor Twisted Steel is coming in here. You forgot sex appeal, man. You forgot the sex appeal. But really, that, it's, it's our reflection, right? We all look in a mirror. Well, almost all of us, depending if you have uh, small kids who take off without looking in the mirror. But we all look in our mirror, and we define ourselves by what we see, do we not? You know, how do I look? And I think the most destructive way um, that we can actually base our identity on is the emphasis that our culture puts on reflection on our appearance in the mirror. Women are under the microscope on appearance in a way that guys just aren't. We can wear socks with our sandals. We, know, you know, we can have a t-shirt that doesn't go all the way down and the beer belly's hanging out and somehow that's acceptable when you're cutting your grass. But women, it's just not fair. It's, uh, it's uh, the appearance pressure on them is unequal in our culture. But may I say this, that there's only one opinion that's important enough to define your life, and that is God's opinion of you. And some people need to hear that. You can have a great relationship. You can be totally successful. You can be culturally beautiful, but you'll always be insecure if, you're, if that's how you define yourself. Because you are basing your identity on self-worth, on something that can be taken away from you instead of on God's love. And I think we all need that reminder that our value, our identity is not found in our relationships, it's not found in our role, and it's not found in our reflection, but in the fact that you and I, we are uniquely, and that's the key word, we are uniquely made, we are intimately known, and we are specially loved by God, and the scriptures shout this repeatedly. You know, at this point, I actually want to do a, a breakout and do a study of Proverbs 31, to which, you know, there are those of you who've grown up in church and you're going, Mother's Day, Proverbs 31, and then usually there's an audible groan in the gathering, and some of you are probably thinking, really, Jerry? You know, cut me some slack. Well, let me just say this. Work with me here. Work with me. 
There's no question that when you watch this movie, Diana is a strong, confident woman who is not defined by her relationships, by her role, or her reflection. And rather, as I watch her in the movie, I can almost see how she almost mirrors a strong woman of God. So the natural question is, what are the biblical practices of a strong woman or man of God? As a matter of fact, I want to present to you five biblical practices of a strong woman or man of God. And uh, if you're to do a study of Proverbs 31, starting at verses 10, thank you very much, to the end of the chapter, you would see that a strong woman or man of God practices integrity. In other words, when you look at Proverbs 31, it's not just, uh, it's just for women. No, it's not. It's for all of us. Um, Proverbs 31 says, who can find a virtuous and capable woman? She is worth more than precious rubies. Well, that's Diana as well. A woman of, of integrity, and where you saw it earlier, a promise is a promise. Her yes is a yes. But also, a strong woman of God practices re- resilience. Proverbs 31, 17 to 18, she is energetic and strong, a hard worker. She makes her dealings, are pro- makes sure her dealings are profitable. Her lamp burns late into the night. In other words, life isn't perfect. Tough times come to all of us, is it not? But a woman or a man who is resilient truly understands that when life gets hard, where do we draw our strength from? We draw our strength from God. And there are so many stories of people, of women in this room who are just like that. When life got hard for you, you have drawn your strength on the Lord to get you through. In the movie, Steve and Diana, they attempt to deliver this notebook. What happens? They get ambushed by German agents. You know, trouble hits them, catches them off guard. But they overcome it. And eventually, um, they arrive safely at Allied High Command. However, command fails to act. And and it's interesting because you see Diana respond in this area. She's disgusted by what I would say was a lack of integrity with the leaders. And so now Diana wants to go to the war. She wants to go to the front. And uh, she wants to show them a new type of warfare, so to speak. But it's on the way to the front that Diana is confronted by the horrors of war. That she's confronted, and I put it this way, by the effects of sin on the world at large. Which reminds me that a strong woman of God practices compassion. Proverbs 31.20, she extends a helping hand to the poor and opens up her arms to the needy. And I think this was actually exemplified by Diana. Watch this. So Diane, uh, she, she begins to see the increasingly horror of war. She sees the effects of sin on the world at large. And as she gets closer to, f- to the front, everything begins to intensify until she can't bear the pain of what's happening anymore, and she's driven by compassion to act. And she shows the Germans a new kind of warfare. Watch this. Oh, yeah. There's some great lines here. Her frustration and her compassion is crystal clear. I could help them, she says, right? We need to help these people. And of course... Like a good man, Steve reminds her that this is no man's land. That no man can cross it. And and he goes on to add, we can't save everybody in this war. And that's not what we came here to do. 
And in that historical pause, Diana responds, no, but it's what I'm going to do. Although no man can cross no man's land, a woman can, obviously, in the movie. Which brings me to my next point, that a strong woman of God practices wisdom. She goes out to inspect the field, right? And she buys it with her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She watches for bargains. She makes belted lemon garments, slashes to sell mercy. When she speaks, her words are wise. Wisdom and knowledge are very different. Knowledge is really all about facts, but wisdom goes beyond knowledge. And, and uh, it is insight and it's judgment to make the best decisions with the knowledge that you have. And that's exactly what Diana does. That's exactly exactly what women and men of God need to do as well. Now, of course, you keep watching the movie, and there's some great battle scenes, and eventually Diana takes out a, a sniper who, ironically, is hiding in the bell tower of a church, and she not only takes out the sniper, she takes out the entire bell tower. I don't know if that was symbolism or not, but ultimately, Diana and Steve and their team make it to the laboratory that's producing all the nerve gas, and they are able to destroy it. But there's this bomber that is on the tarmac filled with the deadly gas. It's about to take off and go drop its payload on London. And so as in good Hollywood fashion, the couple, uh, there's a couple of battles that take place simultaneously here. And so Steve and his team are trying to kill off the uh, advancing army and commandeer the plane. And Diana now is on her quest to kill Ares. And throughout the movie, we're led to believe that Ares, the god of war, is in, person, is in the person of General Erich Ludendorff. And of course, a fight ensues, and Diana defeats Ludendorff, leaving everyone watching to believe that Ares, the god of war, is now dead, and her mission is finished. Watch this. So Diana holds to her belief that, human, uh, that the human drive to cause pain, to cause suffering, is driven by Ares, the god of war. You know, controlling and driving evil forward. That's, that's what he, he was to do. But after she defeats who she thought was Ares, she begins to realize that he's simply hovering in the background, almost like if you're familiar with any of C.S. Lewis's writings, the old demon screw tape, you know, whispering incitements into the ears of the vulnerable. You know, in her conversation with Steve, we see that humanity is made in the divine image. And therefore, our, our beings of intrinsic inherent worth, we're told the same thing when we open the scriptures to Genesis, that God made human beings in his image and that they were very good. Genesis 127, Genesis 131. And human beings are beautiful. They're wonderful creatures. Every human life is worth protecting. And all, everyone, should be treated with respect and kindness and love and worthy of respect. had the opportunity this um, if I hold this here it stops me from crying so just deal with it 
Uh, yeah, I can't figure it out either, but it works. So, I had the opportunity to meet the pastors, Syrian pastors, actually Jordanian pastors, that are responsible for our three Syrian families and being here in Canada. To hear their story and to hear the stories of what people have gone through, they did a video. And in that video, broke my heart. And then Sharon and I had this opportunity just to talk to Anna and Dikram. And they look to us and say, thank you. Today we have Atala sitting at the soundboard. The latest of our refugees who have come over from Syria. And they say to us, thank you. And yet the stories of what they do and the value they have placed on every life, regardless of how they felt towards individuals, was through the roof. And it's a passion that I believe that North America needs to embrace because we are so self-centered. i got to stick to my notes. What we see is that in this movie, humanity is also very broken. Humanity is so terrible. Humanity is selfish. And Diana discovers that human beings often make the choice, and you think about it, to embrace evil, to embrace violence, and to embrace greed. And although they've been corrupted by an evil being, there is evil in, uh, in the very core of each and every one of them. And she discovers that saving them is not so simple as destroying the one evil being, but that the evil in the hearts of humanity must also be destroyed. And, and it's great that that scene you just saw, even Steve admits that the evil, that evil's in his heart and that he's part of the problem. And when we look to the scriptures, we see that the scriptures are very clear on this topic, that human beings have been corrupted by sin and we have fallen short of God's glory. And the payout for that sin has been and will continue to be death. And this is a terrible truth, and it's refreshing to me to see that a movie not only embraces it, but actually shows Diana grieving that truth. She eventually gets her encounter with Ares in a very most unlikely person, and in the customary epic superhero battle that takes place, we get a better insight into her adversary's thought process. As it turns out, as you know, the, the movie, he rebels against Zeus because Zeus loved humanity so much. Ares just didn't get Zeus's affection for such flawed, problematic creatures. And so that affection for humanity is what theologians like Thomas Aquinas believe contributed to Lucifer's downfall when we read the scripture. Like Ares, Lucifer once rubbed elbows with the Almighty. 
Can we put it that way? He was the angel of the angels. And indeed, he was once more considered to be the highest of all the angels. But he wanted more. And he wasn't about just to serve mankind. He, he fell and has been in constant rebellion ever since. And so Ares goes on in the movie to tell Diana that, unlike what she's been taught, he, he didn't make all humanity go bad and petty and violent. And, you know, oh sure, he perhaps suggested certain ideas and he whispered certain thoughts, but mankind has an innate, innate instinct for evil. Their actions are their own. And it's the same with us, is it not? Sure, the Bible tells us that Satan has some sorts of influence over us, but he doesn't make us do anything. Even in the Garden of Eden, the serpent didn't stuff a piece of fruit down Adam and Eve's throats. They, they made their own bad choice, just as you and I sometimes we make our own. The responsibility, when you think about it, when it comes to our choice and the fact that we have free will, the responsibility literally lands at our doorsteps. And so the clash between Ares and Diana could almost be seen as a mirror into Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Ares, during the whole battle, is inviting Diana to join him, to, to leave mankind, turn your back on your destiny, help him to reshape in the world in an image that's more pleasing to him. And he reminds her how flawed humans are, how weak they can be, that they're not pure, wise beings that Zeus created. They're fallen creatures. He says, they don't deserve you, he tells her. They deserve far worse. And that is a deeply resonant echo of Christian theology right there. We don't deserve the grace as believers that we are given. Diana learns that the decision to respond to evil is a personal one. It's made in the heart of every person. She understands that evil must be defeated. And likewise, Jesus came to put an end to evil forever. And, and like Diana, Jesus had a mission to destroy evil. But unlike Diana, he is the eternal and omniscient almighty God. He came to earth and he was born in the flesh for the very purpose of defeating sin, death, and the devil at the cross. And one day he will return to put an end to the devil and to evil and to death forever. And when, while Christians, we wait for, eagerly for Jesus' return and this new heaven and new earth to come. Read the end of the book. We should take every opportunity prior to that to share the good news of Jesus. We should never look the other way in the face of evil, but we must instead fight against it and do as Ephesians 6, 10 to 18 tells us to do, to put on the full armor of God. Why? Because we are in a spiritual battle. In the movie, we see that evil is by nature is covert. And it's quite interesting because Diana's friends don't believe her from the start of the movie that, you know, she's warning them all that Ares is real and he's dangerous. And in the biblical parallels, likewise with Satan, he wants to convince people that he's not a threat. 
None of Diana's friends believe her when she first tells them that a God of war exists. Watch the movie. It's interesting. They find out eventually that she's telling the truth when they experience Ares' wrath and the great battle with Diana at the very end of the movie. You know, we talk about Satan in church and we almost want to be apologetic. You know, we shouldn't be talking about stuff like that. Let me just say this. If we're going to open this word, this, this Bible, then we need to believe what it's saying to us. And it's been said that Satan's greatest accomplishment is convincing people that he isn't real. Many people write off the devil as a silly character, red costume, horns, and a tail in reality. You know, Ares in our story is just a fictional god. Well, Satan is a very real created being with great power. But he's not a god. And he can only do what God sovereignly allows on earth. And believers should expect attacks from the devil and to be prepared for those attacks. Peter exhorts believers to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In other words, if it's not coming to you, it's definitely gone to somebody else. And Christians, we should never fear the devil. As a matter of fact, having this unhealthy fear that there's a demon under every seat, that's so wrong, but that doesn't mean that we, he's not going to try to shipwreck our faith through various trials or persecutions or suffering. The devil is real, Satan is real, and people should not underestimate his power to wreak havoc on this earth. For proof, just read Job 1, 1 to 22. And yet, as believers, we as Christians need to take heart from the words of Jesus. He says this in John, I say these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome it. Ares knows that Diana's on this mission to destroy him. And he tries to entice Diana to join him so that they can rule together. That they can bring his, their type of peace to the world by destroying the corrupt humanity and when you think about it, the devil was on a mission to destroy the coming Messiah, long even before he was born in the flesh. When Jesus was beginning his ministry, Satan twisted scripture out of context in order to tempt Jesus to worship him. And yet no one knows God's word better than Jesus. Jesus resisted Satan's temptations. And like Jesus, Christians not only need to know scripture people, but we need to understand Bible verses in their proper context so that we're not led away by false teachings. Ares tries to convince Diana that it's useless to fight against him. He's saying that he's more powerful than she is. And likewise, Satan, I think, wants us to think that he's more powerful than God. And I think that in our Western culture, that many times the church has just given up and we, we actually believe that. And Ares tries again and again, and he's relentless with both words and physical force to try to persuade Diana to give up her mission to destroy him. And yet Diana knows that it's up to her to defeat Ares because nobody else can in our story. As believers, we don't have to worry about defeating the devil because Jesus has already accomplished that feat on the cross. Satan's doom is sure. The believers are safe and secure in God's love. Paul 
Paul actually goes so far to to comfort believers with these words. He says, for I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, no powers, no height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. One of the songs we sang all last week was, the battle is the Lord's, and he, he has already won it. Do we believe it? And as Diana and Aries fight, Steve's able to actually get into the plane as it's taking off. And of course, he overtakes the crew. And then he flies the bomber up into the atmosphere where he detonates the payload. And he dies, obviously, in the subsequent explosion. And so Steve Trevor sacrifices his own life for humankind. And this this act of self-sacrifice convinces Diana that human beings, despite the violence and evil that are within them, are actually capable of goodness and love and nobility. And so she vows to go on fighting for humankind. And, and, and people, remember, doing the right thing sometimes requires sacrifice. Various characters make sacrifices to fight evil in this movie, where there's Diana's mom giving up her only begotten child to send her off into man's world to save them from themselves or Steve Trevor's friends who agree to fight not for money as they usually do but because that fight now becomes the right thing to do or Steve's sacrifice of his own life for those in London it all has an effect on Diana And again, great movie. When all appears to be hopeless in Diana's fight, she looks up. She sees that Steve has given his life for others. She is filled with grief, the customary scream in every movie, right? To which gives her this supernatural energy. And Ares takes advantage, though, of her pain. And he begins to speak and he says, look at this world. Mankind did this, not me. They're ugly. They're filled with hatred. They're weak, just like your Captain Trevor. Gone and left you nothing and left you for nothing. Pathetic. He deserved to burn. Wow. Then in a moment when the mask of Dr. Isabel Maru, the Dr. Poison, as we know in this movie, it falls off, it blows off, it reveals physical effects, the effects of sin, as I would put it. And Ares draws attention to this woman, culturally ugly. And he says, look at her and tell me I'm wrong. See, she's the perfect example of these humans and unworthy of your sympathy in every way. Destroy her, Diana. I need to be an actor. She deserves it. They all do. Then Diana has a flashback where Steve says to her, I can save today, you can save the world. And then Diana responds, watch this. Perhaps the film's key line, or she actually does a pretty good job of unpacking God's graces when she says, it's not about what you deserve, it's about what you believe, and I believe in love. 
And with that, as I'm watching it, an avalanche of powerful verses begin to tumble into play. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We love because he first loved us. And if, if, if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all the faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. And in Diana's heroism, there's more than just a hint of the gospel that is the Christian message. That all people deserve death and hell, but by believing in Jesus Christ and by accepting his sacrifice, people are forgiven in their sins and they can be reconciled to God through Jesus. We even have this not so subtle imagery of Diana rising in the air, forming the shape of Jesus on the cross. And she makes a choice that human beings are worth saving and loving despite their fallen nature. And here's the, the key bit. Despite the fact that they deserve to die, she still believes that humanity deserves a chance to be saved. And I find it very interesting, uh, an interesting concept that that will resound with those of us who believe in the total depravity of man apart from God. Now watch this. When the movie opens, they're actually led to believe that the sword is the God killer that we saw at the first clip. But when Diana runs into Ares, she discovers that the sword is actually a sham and in truth that she is the, quote, so-called God killer. And after Diana she kills Ares, she realizes that evil still exists in the world. And she concludes that everyone has good and evil in them. And she's committed to continue her fight against evil while recognizing still the good in people. And so the problem with this world is not only the devil, the problem really is also within us. And the Bible does say that God made people in his image and that everything he made was good, and indeed it was very good according to Genesis 1.31. Because of Adam's, though, disobedience and fall, all people bear Adam's guilt. And since Adam represented all humanity, it gets passed down. And so Adam's sin caused the corruption of his nature and all his posterity, including you and me. And we now bear that same sinful nature. And Paul goes on in the New Testament. He begins to describe Adam's far-reaching consequences of his rebellion. And he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And instead of communing daily with God, humans are now unworthy to stand in their creator's holy presence because of our sinful nature. We all have sinned and fallen short of the God's glory. And that's interesting, and I need to point this out, because Diana's conclusion is that everybody is partly good and partly evil. That actually closely parallels a 4th century teaching, a heretical teaching known as semi-pelagialism. And I need to say this, it's not, it's not the biblical description of humanity. We don't all have a little bit of good and a little bit of evil. The Bible teaches that we are all wholly sinful. And humanity needs a champion. Ares knew that Diana was the, quote, real God killer and not her sword, and that she alone can stop him. But in real life, we need a sin killer. 
not a God killer. Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil, not with a physical sword, but with his perfect life offered up as the Lamb of God. Whereas Diana uses her superpowers to defeat Ares, Jesus bore the humiliation and the pain unto death by taking on human flesh and being rejected and beaten and scorned and crucified because of his love for this world. Satan arrogantly thought that he could finally destroy Jesus on the cross, but it's at the cross where Jesus won the victory over Satan and Satan's death and his grip over us and his historical resurrection that we just celebrated from the dead proves that death could not hold him in his grip. And whether we want to believe it or not, God is real, the devil is real, and the the wretched state of the world should be evidence enough that sin is real. And just because people think that God won't call them to account someday for all their thoughts and deeds on this earth doesn't mean that they're right. Jesus first came to this earth like a lamb in humility. He will return, as we read in the end, like a lion to judge sin and evil and to rule and to reign forevermore. But in his mercy and in God's sovereignty and graciousness, he allows evil to exist on this earth while Christ currently builds his kingdom. And Peter says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, towards me, not wishing that anybody should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Wonder Woman, this movie concludes with one huge uh, takeaway. Only love can save the world. The Bible tells us that God himself is love. The greatest commandment is love. God sent Jesus to save the world because of his great love for all the people in it. In Christian theology, love is that motivating cause of salvation, the way through which salvation is effected and the person which is made possible. The world can only be saved. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) By one love, and that's God's love. When you think about it, people, we love, we hate, we hurt, some of us hug, we suffer, we save, we're good, we're evil, we're flesh, we're spirit, we're profane, and yet somehow divine, we're human, we're both in spite of and because of, we're broken, and we're beautiful. But still, Diana's mothers are true. We don't deserve salvation. But Jesus doesn't save us because we deserve it. He saves us because he loves us. And this relentless love is also called by another name, and we call it grace. And grace as an unending outpouring of God's transformation love over all humankind is relentless, and it's for everyone. And Christians, we don't own God's relentless love. We don't get to decide who's worthy or deserving. Grace is God's gift. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. It's for the broken. It's for the beautiful. Even if you don't come to church very often, even if you've cheated or stole or lied, even if you didn't even put your grocery cart back where it's supposed to after you went shopping, even if you don't know what you believe, even if you are an imaginary hero hero with an imaginary island loosely based on Greek mythology with cool bracelets and a lie-detecting lasso, 
You're still sustained by a relentless love of God's grace and mercy. Remember I said that there were five biblical practices of strong women or men of God. There is integrity, resilience, compassion, and wisdom. There's a fifth. There's faith. These traits are not developed accidentally, but they are godly traits that we develop as we set our hearts on knowing who God is. Proverbs says she is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. And if you're wanting to be that strong woman or man of God, it's not about trying harder. It's about trusting God. It's about having faith and allowing him to make you more like himself. And that first step is a commitment. And if that is what you want to be, you need to take that. You have to decide that if, if that's the man or woman that you want to be. Are those the characteristics that you want? Those traits, those five traits of integrity, resilience, compassion, wisdom, and faith. Do you want those in your life? Because until you and I make that decision, we will constantly struggle. And today, if you haven't already, I want to encourage you to make a commitment. Make a decision that, that this is the person you want to be. And then secondly, pray over these points and ask God to give you more of what you need. Integrity, resilience, compassion, wisdom, and faith. Let's bow our heads. And if that's you today and you're going, I just need you, Jerry, would you just pray for me? Would you, I just, I need those five things in my life. You know, just, nobody's looking. Will you just put up your hand? Just put it up and put it down and I'll pray for you. Yes, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Anybody else? God, when we come to you, it's like walking out of darkness into the light, and there are so many things, so many experiences that damage and spoil our lives every day. There are so many things that actually prevent us from being the kind of people you meant us to be, and we've wandered, and sometimes we've not yet arrived. We've started, but we haven't finished, and all you do is ask us to have faith, to believe. That God, if we're to be honest, sometimes it's hard to believe. And thankful for the joy of life and for this beautiful world in which you've placed us and for all of those that you've given to us to share this journey that we call life. Those whom we've shared special and precious moments and those who have been there when we have actually needed them. God, I thank you for laughter. I thank you for tears, for seeing, for listening, for thinking and doing. And God, I just thank you for the gift of just even being alive. Thank you for the words, the deeds of those who have changed life for other people, those who have brought the word of hope to those who are broken, the message of love for those who are down, those who have spoken words of forgiveness to those who are wrong, and those whose lives have been brought encouragement to those without joy. Thank you for those who warn others of danger and those who declare the good news of Jesus Christ. But most of all, God, today I just take time to thank you for hope. Hope of a life with you. And God, I am the physical expression of your mercy and grace. And I pray through your strength and not my will, but yours, that you will make me an instrument of your peace. 
God, forgive me where I need forgiveness. Give me strength where I can't do it on my own. Convict me of my wrongdoing. Guide me on the path of repair and rejuvenation because Jesus, I'm yours. And may that be the prayer of everyone else that is here. I am not my own. And my life has been bought with a price. So God, use us for your purpose. Fill us with your spirit. Keep us in your will. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I know I've kept you over, but uh, Jordan McClellan, where are you? We have to give something. And uh, what we do is we actually... uh, get you to write stuff and we have some things that have come out here uh, woman I celebrate Joan Hawes she is thoughtful and she shows her love to me daily she wants to be with me and she's outgoing and always in a cheerful mood she takes me places and sometimes I don't know how to thank her her daughter another honorable uh, mention Susan DeBache number one she puts up with me number two she's a great mom to our three kids number three She's a great motherly person to all her kids at Fort Richmond Collegiate Skills for Lunch program, her husband, Alan. Another runner-up, Caitlin Cron. She has been pouring herself out for children for years, and this year she became a mom of two beautiful girls. She's compassionate, nurturing, and allows God to use her in powerful ways. She makes everyone around her feel welcome and turns a group into a family just with her presence. Ah, Stephanie. And I have another one that came to me. It says, can we honor someone who functions as a caregiver, wisdom imparter? <laughs> who is there for every cry, every shout, a concerned voice by many a child. Although she has no children of her own, her motherly spirit is poured into the lives of our children. And she's a special spiritual mother to me. Often her role is overseen as a job and not a passion and love to every child that walks through the doors of the soul sanctuary. Can we celebrate Shauna Lavender this morning? I say yes. She here? Shauna. Will you stand? Give her a hand. Enjoy. Nature Times, the one who blessed, extend his hand for a blessing. Those receiving blessing did likewise. Here we go, Soul Sanctuary. Put your hands in the air for a blessing. And as you, Soul Sanctuary, where's my music? <laughs> May you be reminded that love sometimes makes a fool of us and that love sometimes kills us. But Soul Sanctuary, may God's love bind you May God's love build you. May God's love heal you. May God's love lift you. And may God's love fill you. And it's not about what we deserve. It's about what we believe and believe in love. And now, so sanctuary, go share it with those who need it. Amen. And now go 
and live the church. Be blessed.